So, the other day, my kids, they came over to me and uh, threatened me. Just like that. It's, it's tough to be a parent uh, to young kids, you know. And I feel like this time of the year, tensions are at quite a high level, right? It's like all the way from Halloween to Christmas, your kids are all hyped up on sugar because people keep on giving them candies. Like, please stop. Just so many candies hyped up on sugar and on excitement. Right? Christmas is coming, Halloween, and they're just crazy about all of it. And things can get rough. You know, things can get tense. So the kids come up to me, both of them at the same time, so they're like ganging up on me, right? And the older one does the talking, while the younger one stands on the side, sort of studying my reaction. He's looking for a way in, you know, ready to pounce on any weakness that I might show. <laughs> and the older one goes, Daddy, we know Santa Claus isn't real. And we know you and mom buy the presents. So we're going to search the whole house <laughs> and all the storage rooms in the basement, and we're going to find them. <laughs> There's nowhere you can hide them from us. <laughs> and they're standing there staring at me. It's tense. It was tense. So Oliver, that's the oldest, was visibly enjoying showing off his, you know, myth-busting abilities and his deep knowledge of the basement storage rooms. He knows they're there, you know. You can't fool me, Dad. I know they're there. While Benjamin, that's the youngest, is doing his best to hide that sort of underlying frustration with the cold truth. Right? The cold truth that rather than flying reindeer, elves, and an acrobatically skilled elderly gentleman sliding down chimneys, what you get and what Christmas is reduced to is gifts being carried by grumpy parents complaining of back pain after they spend a the night trying to shove it into a corner of the storage in the basement. Theoretically, okay, I'm not saying that's where they are. I'm not going to admit to anything. I'm not saying. So we're there, facing each other. And what do you do as a parent? Well, you have two options. You can try to purge or at least discourage the doubt. Right? Of course it's true, you know? Or you can explore those seeds of doubt and cultivate that sense of mystery. So I go, oh, so you mean we buy the presents? Hmm. Hmm. And then I turn and go away. Just let it hangy, right? I, I didn't really fool them, right? Beyond them finding it fun that I'm willing to keep on the game of make-believe. That's, that's really as far as it goes. But it's an interesting question, right? How do we deal with doubt and belief? How do we deal with doubt and faith? 
And this season that we are in, the season of Advent, is perhaps a season where this question again comes very much to the forefront. And on the superficial level, there is the Santa story, right? With the young kids wondering and trying to figure out if it's true or not. But that's not really what I am referring to right now. Because the season leading up to the celebration of Christmas is a season in which the story of Christmas, of course, is again highlighted and retold and sung about and portrayed all over the place. All over the place. And that is true not only of Christian churches and Christian spaces that might use the word Advent, right? And and might, you know, use these churchy words and churchy settings around it. That is, that is very much the case all over the place. Especially so in a country such as Norway that is heavily secularized, but also has a deep history of the influence of Christianity. This, I mean, our calendar is based on the Christian calendar. And this is, of course, true for many places in the world, or at least many places in the West. You go around and... Whether people believe it or not, it doesn't matter. There's nativity scenes all over the place. Right? You walk into a store and you have jazzy songs and it's Frank Sinatra singing, but he's singing God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen, you know, or he's singing uh, about the Virgin Mary. Yeah. It's all over the place. It's all over the place. The so-called Christian message of Christmas is coming up and it's in the public space. And whether people believe in the story or not, they will bump into it. They will somehow have to deal with it. And churches might be tempted to use this season to double down on the need to believe. The need to believe and on trying to weed out any doubt. I'm sure you heard a pastor do this. Now, we're going to talk about the real story of Christmas Now, interestingly enough, I think that that logic is not really exclusive to religious faith circles or streaming platforms like Netflix, Disney Plus, or whatever it may be, right? They're going to be flooded with recommendations of cheesy Christmas movies, And they are very often the same underlying message that if you only believe strongly enough, usually in Santa, in the movies, but whatever, you know? If you only believe strongly, strongly enough, you will witness and experience miracles and wonderful things. Santa only comes to the kids that really believe. And then the church comes in that says, well, Jesus will come to those who really believe. So that's the logic. And we double down on the stories and on the songs, which might be just fine, but we very often do so as a strategy to not only encourage belief, but to discourage doubt, which might not be fine and which might not be healthy. Because doesn't the story of Christmas and the story of Jesus invite questions? Who is this Jesus? What does it mean that we wait for him? It's what the word Advent stands for, right? It's the coming, the coming of the Messiah. 
And in Christian churches, we'll talk about waiting for Jesus still, waiting for a second coming, waiting for some sort of fulfillment. What does that mean? What does it mean to wait for him now that he has lived and died? And we believe rose again. Does his birth really mean all that much? How does this even work with a virgin birth? Does his life really mean all that much? His life? His death? What do I do with these stories of his resurrection? In a season so publicly centered on the person of Jesus, it's only fair to ask, what, what will we make of this Jesus and of his stories? And churches often see those questions as only useful as far as they lead you to the Christian faith, after which they should be exchanged for certainty and doubt should be purged. But does it really go away? Does it really go away? And is it really the goal that we get rid of doubt altogether? I don't believe so. And I am thankfully in the company of many Christian sisters and brothers throughout the world and throughout history who don't believe so. Though uh, that is probably all too seldom said out loud. So today I want to welcome doubt. And I want to call upon perhaps a very unexpected guide as we, rather than running away from doubt, explore a bit of the importance of it together. And I'm not after today answering (laughs) doubt. But our guide into why we might just need some of it or the presence of it might not mean that there's something wrong with our faith, but quite the contrary. And our guide is none other than a firebrand preacher, John the Baptist. John the Baptist. And I want to open with you uh, a text from the gospel according to St. Matthew, and it's in chapter 11. Now read from verses 1 to 15, and it says, After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, this is John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind. If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. 
Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. There is the, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. There's a lot we could unpack in this text. We're not going to unpack it all. But I have many times seen this text being approached with the underlying question of what went wrong. What went wrong that John is now doubting Jesus? Isn't John the first one to publicly declare Jesus to be the Messiah? Every time we celebrate Holy Communion in this congregation, as part of our liturgy, we sing out loud the words of John the Baptist, who recognized Jesus and said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is when Jesus is about to be baptized, at the beginning of his ministry. Long before Peter, touched by the Holy Spirit, says, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. So what went wrong is often the question that John was now doubting Jesus. But the thing is, Jesus himself, in the biblical text itself, does not at all seem flustered or bothered by John's question. And he does not disavow John, but rather he praises him quite highly. Jesus does not speak as highly of any other person than he does as John here. And not only that, he confirms his ministry. He reaffirms John's ministry as the one who in the lines of the prophets is declaring the redemptive work of God and is the one, and then there's these references to Elijah, which is a references to to prophecies that shaped the messianic hopes of the Jewish people. And when John puts... When Jesus puts John and Elijah side by side, he's saying, John is a prophet, John is a prophet, speaking of the hope of the messianic, the messianic hope, and he's speaking of me. He reaffirms his ministry. And as I spend time with this text, I have found that rather than troubling me, John's doubt encourages me. And I find it beautiful. And I find it beautiful for two reasons. And that's really what I wanted to talk about. The first is the mere fact that the Bible so unashamedly and so wonderfully brings us somebody like John doubting. There's no issues with it. You know, the gospel writers, they pick and choose. They don't say everything that they had seen Jesus do. They're collecting memories, and they're shaping them together and writing them. And what they put on the paper are the things that they think we must know. 
So they could have not put this on the pages, right? It doesn't look good if what we think is necessary for being a standing person of faith is that we have no doubt. This does not look for, good for John. And this is not, you know, Thomas, one of the disciples, who is already a bit like doubting all through and a bit of that kind of type. No, this is John. John is the one who has a sort of miraculous birth as well because his, his parents are way too old. And through the declaration of an angel, Elizabeth gets pregnant. He is born. He gets the name John, which is a name given by the angel. He is set apart by his people, by his parents from his young age. He is raised as a, as a Nazarene, as a, as a, as raised with, separated and with all these things around him, right? He abstains from alcohol. He abstains from parties. He does all these things to set him apart. Then he lives in the desert, and then he's a firebrand prophet, right? Going out and saying, come, repent. The kingdom of God is near. And he's speaking with power and certainty. Challenges the religious authorities. Recognizes Jesus who for he is. If we take all the other verses describing John, he doesn't look like the guy who's going to have any doubts. Somebody who is willing to live in the desert, speak against the religious authorities, and get arrested for his beliefs, we would think is somebody who has no doubts. Yet the scripture so graciously and so wonderfully says, well, here John is saying, is this it, Jesus, or did I get it wrong? I'm struggling here. I'm struggling. I want to know, uh, did, I, did I misunderstand something? I, I don't understand. There's something John doesn't understand. And he asks. He asks. He brings it up. He's saying, I'm struggling here. You know what? Jesus, help me understand. What do I do with my doubt? And I think that itself is wonderful. Jesus does not disavow his doubt. He does not disavow him as a person. He does not disavow his ministry or what he's doing. That is not what we often get from religious circles and from churches, right? We get leaders who are supposed to be so certain that they will run over everything and everyone. So we hide our doubts, right? We squeeze them into a corner. We don't say it. We don't want to get into trouble. But here's John, John the Baptist, saying, yeah, I don't know. Something here is difficult. And Jesus is saying, yeah, it is. He's not saying, ah, John, come on, you're ruining my ministry here, right? Or John, stop that. Or John, let me put you right. No. And then there's the question, and this is the second thing. So the first thing is just that, you know, that the, the scripture puts it out there. But the second thing is the question of why he doubts. And it's important then to set the doubt in the context of John's life. And here's the thing. John, by all we know, is not only a person who has a burning heart for God and for the message he has to give. No, he has 
a deep heart, as far as we can tell from the scriptures, he has a deep heart for the broken world. He wants to see it transformed. Come, repent. Let's make new ways. A new way is coming. A new reality can exist. God is bringing it about. An age of redemption, an age of change, an age of freedom. John calls the poor. And when the religious authorities or those in power come to him to be baptized, he calls them out, right? You are a brood of vipers. You're oppressing the people. John has a heart for those who are broken, for those who are struggling, and a heart for freedom of those who are under oppression. And there's good reason to believe that one of the, one probable reason for why John is questioning Jesus, Jesus as the Messiah is that he doesn't play the role as was expected not only by John, but by many at the time. And if you take just John's preaching about Jesus, you would expect Jesus to come on the same kind of straight-on strategy as John does, right? Come with fire and brimstone and just get the whole thing leveled down. Also, many people expected Jesus to become a political leader and put down the Romans and all that stuff, bring down the authorities, and John is in prison. Not long after this, he's going to get killed. So he's there, he's in prison, he's looking around, and by all he can see, Herod is winning. The corrupt people are winning. People are still struggling. God knows who else is in prison with him and he looks around, but it can't be good. And he's saying, come on, Jesus, this is not what I expected. What do I do with this? John has a heart for the broken world. And as we meet John's, as Jesus meets John's heart, how does he answer, right? He answered by showing off his own heart. Showing off is a bad word. By exposing is what I mean, right? Exposing his own heart also for the broken world and the broken people. Jesus starts talking about his signs, right? He says, well, look around. Tell, tell him what you're seeing. And he talks about his signs as signs of redemption, right? Not as power-offs. And I think it's very significant that Jesus does not answer with a yes or a no. Doesn't go and say, yeah, I'm the Messiah. Tell him that, that will do. His answer is no. Look for the signs of the kingdom. John has been saying the kingdom of God is coming. And the Messiah brings it. So look for the signs of the kingdom. And I also find it very significant, the grammar. Right? Jesus doesn't answer. Look around. I give blind, the blind sight. I make the lame walk. I clean those with leprosy. No, he decentralizes in a way. And rather than use the royal language that would be associated in, in the way people wrote about heroes at the time, in which you put everything, right? Everything is done by the king. But Jesus says, no, look what's happening in the community. And he sets focus on the service and on the community that is being served. Look at the signs of what's going on. Look at the possibilities of redemption. Look at what's happening to people around me. And by doing that, Jesus is doing two things in this context. Well, for one, he's saying something is happening here. 
But also he's saying, my heart, John, and my heart, everybody else, is for the same thing. It's for the broken people. It's for the hurting. It's for those in need of repentance. It's for those in need of healing. I think doubt is inevitable. It's inevitable in a faith that dares to look around. Isn't that what Jesus says? Well, look around and tell him what you're seeing. And I think if they look around and if we look around, we see both. We see the signs of the kingdom and we see the people that, we see the, the, the times it doesn't work, right? We look around and we see people being transformed. We see lives being transformed. We see signs of hope. We see signs of transformation. We see possibilities. We see expressions of love and we see expressions of hatred. And we see war and we see people who struggle with disease through their whole life and are not healed no matter how strong they pray. And we see people who really work hard and never come out of poverty because the whole system works against them. And if we care, we're going to ask. That's what the psalmists are doing all the time. God, what's happening? And John's doubt seems to be rooted in his love for the world, and Jesus' answer is not a is not a trying to, call, to, to shut down his doubt, but is a, this something's happening. I, I feel the pain. I know what it's about. That's where my heart is as well. So I don't think that doubt is always a bad thing. I think the real danger is not doubting. The real danger is not looking around and not caring. I think the real danger is giving up on looking for the signs of the kingdom and believing in them and giving our best for them. And it's also blinding our eyes for the real brokenness, struggling, and brokenness of the world. That's the real danger is if we focus our faith so much in the religious person of Jesus that we don't see where he's looking, and he's looking around. He's looking at the people. He's looking at the struggles. He's looking at the reality. Do we dare to look at the reality with our faith? So I say, welcome. Welcome to doubt. Welcome to doubts. Welcome to doubts of compassion to make us question our faith. And try to deal with it. Welcome to doubts of honesty. That mean we don't hide our doubt in a prison, in a dark cell somewhere, but we dare to bring it before Jesus and a community of faith. I say welcome to doubts that keep us searching for Jesus and walking with Jesus as he walks with us and with those who suffer and struggle and those who dare to have a faith in the middle of how difficult it is in the reality of the world.
at some point with your kids. And I feel like we're getting there with my kids. At some point, hiding the gifts won't fool them anymore, right? They, they know about the storage in the basement. They know that you wrapped it. And they need to be allowed to search and have questions. And at some point, to learn that the gifts are bought and made and given by people. And I think it's exciting. Because then we can start talking about this thing of giving gifts. They were asking about this the other day as well. Why, why do we give gifts? It's Jesus' birthday. We get gifts to each other. What's the deal with this thing? Why? What? And they start asking about it, right? And then we can start talking about kindness and generosity. About showing care, about showing love, about... Uh, learning to be as excited about giving a gift as about receiving one. It takes maturity, it takes time. Then eventually, that might bring some other hard questions. And they might start asking, well, this gift-giving season that we're in, it also leads bear a lot of injustice of the world. And maybe they're going to be children of a wiser generation, which will look around and will be like, yeah, this actually does some damage as well, right? We're buying a lot. We're consuming a lot. Who's making these gifts? What's going on here? And they're going to make other hard questions. And that will lead to even deeper conversations about the choices we make, about how we deal with each other. And I hope the questions will keep coming. And that they'll be more difficult. Because unless they're tackling life with their faith, their faith will be either a parade or hypocritical or it will whine away and fade. So I hope we will allow doubt to be a fertile ground for learning and for learning how to be a community better. Jesus, John is in prison. He's struggling. Is this it? Are you the one? Well, tell John what, what's happening. Look around. Seeds of the kingdom are here. And it's starting to blossom in the middle of the desert. John is going to die in prison. This isn't a Hollywood movie, right? He doesn't come out and ride on Santa's sled out of there or something. That's not how it goes. He dies in prison. But I want to believe he dies with hope. Because the signs are there, but especially because he knows that Jesus sees. Jesus sees what he sees. And he's there. Because of that, we can say, yes, the kingdom of God is somehow already among us. And there is hope, and there is reason to believe.
there are doubts, spur us even forward, deeper and closer to Jesus. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious towards you. May the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you into the days of struggle and pain and the days of rejoicing that he may bring you peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and serve the world, serve each other, serve the Lord joyfully. Amen.